that hymn that Alan sung. You maybe think that Casting Crowns wrote that. Actually, it's about 100 years old. And we found that in our hymnal as my family and I were worshiping uh, just a few days ago. And we said, hey, look at this. This is the Casting Crowns song. And, well, we looked it up on the Internet, and it's over 100 years old. It's called One Day. So pretty nice to, to think about these things. Mark chapter 2. I want to ask you a few questions before we start. When was the last time you had faith in Jesus? And I'm talking about the kind of faith where you trusted in him completely to help you through a difficult time and didn't waver. When was the last time that you held on to all that you knew about your Savior and rested in the fact that the outcome of your problem was safely in his hands? And when was the last time that he answered all your prayers, met you all the way, said yes and amen to all your requests and totally blew you away with his unique creative response. In other words, have you been surprised by Jesus lately? How many have been surprised by Jesus lately? Good. Again, it's easy to lead a boring, static Christian life and not really experience the dynamism that comes with faith in Christ. Zach always says, are you living on the knife edge of faith? That means you have to trust and risk a little bit, don't, don't you? But there are stories in the Bible that can awaken us to a renewed understanding of who Jesus is. Stories that are true, stories that can inspire us to hold on, to reach out, and to risk. And the passage we're looking at this morning is such a story. Five men were surprised by Jesus when they put their faith into action. And they were greatly rewarded for their efforts. After studying this account, my hope is that you will leave here encouraged to trust Jesus more. To exercise your faith in him in a stronger way. And to once again, once again, realize what an awesome God we worship. And maybe this morning you'll be surprised by Jesus. Let's read Mark chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is one of my favorite accounts in the Bible. But if you're just reading it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. How can guys dig through the roof? What good is it when a paralyzed man comes before Jesus and says his sons are forgiving, forgiven? 
why is Jesus called a blasphemer? And it's a great privilege to be able to study a passage like this and to explain it because I was encouraged and I hope you will be as well. Let's start with verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Jesus had been away for a while preaching in the synagogues of Galilee and driving out demons. Everywhere he went, the Bible says, he healed all the people during this time. In fact, he had just cured a man of leprosy, the worst disease possible at the time, and word spread about this man, Jesus. In that passage about Jesus healing this man of leprosy, Jesus told the man, go show yourself to the priest, but don't say anything about me. You know what he did? He went out and told everyone, wouldn't you if you were healed of leprosy? So I have a new evangelistic plan. Don't tell anyone about Jesus. The people knew that Jesus was a healer. He was a miracle worker and had just returned home, probably the home of Peter and Andrew, where he had healed Peter's mother-in-law. Isn't it great that Jesus has compassion on mothers-in-law? Husbands, you ought to as well. And how many people were there? Verse 2. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Tons of people crowded to watch, to see Jesus heal, to be healed. They wanted to see miracles. But Jesus wasn't working miracles in the house. No, he preached the word to them. That phrase literally means he was speaking to them the word. And the Greek for the word means message of salvation or the good news or the gospel. More important than healings, more important than raisings from the dead, more important than demons being cast out of people is the message of salvation. All those miracles that were happening at that time, any miracles that happen in this day and age must point to the one who can bring salvation to all who would believe in him. Jesus' first priority was to see sinners saved. Luke 19 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That is the most important thing. And I wonder if all those people gathered in that house were disappointed that there wasn't a show, but, quote, just a message. Just a message about how to be saved from hell. I wonder if that crowd complained that the sermon was a little too long or that there weren't enough jokes and illustrations. Now, the crowds were there, but that doesn't mean that Jesus was successful. A lot of people at a Christian event does not necessarily equate to a successful ministry. Having a congregation of, say, 45,000 people like one church in America has does not mean those people are followers of Christ. Having the largest growth group or the biggest prayer meeting may not mean that people are there to know more about God. Those people in that crowded house packed in to see Jesus were there to see a show. Now, Mark doesn't write that people were flocking to him in repentance and faith. They wanted their physical needs met. They wanted signs and wonders. They wanted to be amazed. But Jesus was preaching the word to them. People want to have their ears tickled in church for the most part. They want to hear positive messages in a crystal cathedral. 
They want three points to a happier marriage. Five godly tips on how to be a slimmer Christian you. Most of all, people want to know how to have their best life now. People want to have their ears tickled in church. And and folks, the only way that you're going to have your best life now is if in your next life you're going to hell. Did you know that? Paul warns a young pastor, Timothy, to stay on track and preach the word. He writes, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to Oprah. I mean, myths. That's right where we're at today, aren't we, as a church? That's right where we're at. People will not endure sound doctrine. Do you remember what happened after Jesus fed the 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes? They flocked after him then too. But when Jesus explained that they would have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, a metaphor for taking him in as total sustenance for their life, they quickly abandoned him. They wanted the healing. They wanted the food. But they weren't really seeking anything spiritual from Jesus. He's preaching the word of God in that crowded house. He's preaching about salvation, about the kingdom of God, and how you get in by repentance and faith. When he preached that message in his hometown of Nazareth, you know what they tried to do? They tried to throw him off a cliff. Jesus' message was so offensive at times that those crowds that gathered to listen to him actually tried to kill him ten times before he even reached the cross. So what are your reasons for being in church this morning. Is it the music? The music's great, but that isn't the reason you come, I hope. The people? How about the cool snacks after the service? Are you here out of a sense of religious obligation that this is your Christian duty and now you can get on with the rest of the day because you came to the early service and you don't want your day ruined? Or are you here to get to know Jesus a little better? Because at Hope Chapel... We preach the word. We don't have dancing monkeys. We don't have skits. We don't have 10-minute cute videos. We don't play movie clips. You get the word. Verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Now, why did these men come? Well, according to Luke's version of this story, they tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. Matthew 4 says that Jesus had healed many paralytics. These guys wanted their friend healed, but they couldn't get him in because of the selfish crowd. We don't know if he was paralyzed in his legs only or if if he was a quadriplegic, but the crowd didn't care. You think that they would notice this poor man on a mat and they'd move aside a little bit. Nope, nope. These are the types who are healthy and, and park in the handicap spaces. They jump in the elevator before the guy in the wheelchair. And they even honk at ambulances. They couldn't care less about anyone else because they have orchestra seats to the Jesus show. Luke says about those men that they tried to take him into the house, but they couldn't do it. Were they deterred from their goal? No, they were determined to meet their goal. So it's not like they tried to get in They had a bunch of backs to them, and they said, oh, what do we do now? They probably pushed and shoved and tried to do everything they can, looked around for a window. Verse 4, 
Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Talk about persistence. (laughs) You talk about creativity. You talk about faith. These four guys weren't going to let an insensitive crowd or roofs or any obstacle get in the way of getting to Jesus. How many times are we frustrated because our alarm clock went off a little late? Ah, we'll just blow it off. Or I'm too tired today. I haven't eaten. Oh my, Christianity is so hard. Got to get up. Well, we have a 1045 service. Praise God for those who oversleep and go, ah, but it ruins my day. My day is not planned. Now, when I was a new Christian, I wondered how the heck these guys did this. How do they get through the roof? Did they have crowbars and hacksaws and sledgehammers under their tunics? And they banged and ground away, splintering beams with concrete exploding all around them. You know, I looked at the houses as if they were the McMansions of the, of, of the South Bay. How do they get in there? How do they get through? Well, to understand this, you have to understand how a Palestinian peasant's house was constructed in those days. It was typically a one-bedroom house with a staircase outside that led to the roof. The roof sometimes was used to sleep on during a hot summer night or a place to go for rest and quiet. You may remember Solomon recommended that it was a good place for husbands to go if they had a nagging wife. (laughs) Proverbs 21.9 says, Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. That's what that reference means, by the way. These days, we don't go on our roofs, do we, men? No, we go to the garage. (laughs) But I digress. The roof had wooden beams, and they were filled in with mud and thatch and sometimes covered over with tiles. So it was no big thing to dig through the roof and make a hole large enough to get a guy through it. Sometimes they had to lift coffins out through the roof in those homes. But here's the interesting thing. These people, these men, who were so determined to get the paralytic in, they had to calculate exactly where Jesus was. Because if they made an error, they'd be back right where they started in the middle of that immovable crowd. I think those guys were engineers. God loves engineers. They calculate, they figure things out. And think about it like this. Can you just see the Lord there teaching? Waxing eloquent about the eternal truths of God. When all of a sudden mud and sticks and straw start falling from the ceiling... I wonder if he stopped preaching. Thatch is falling on the heads of the listeners, covering everyone. There's a mess. This is one disturbing distraction, isn't it? Especially if you're trying to make a point. And the kingdom of heaven is like, hey, invariably, invariably, right when a preacher is getting to the main crux of the sermon, that's when the baby cries. Or the whooping cough epidemic starts. Or 12 people get up to go to the bathroom. But because we're professionals, we don't let it bother us. How long do you think it took for those guys anyway to dig that four by six hole in the roof? You know, you think they just dug through the roof. Okay, it just just got through and went in. No, four by six, that's a lot of digging, a lot of dirt, a lot of mess, a lot of distractions. Did Jesus stop teaching? Did he press on? Do you think there were hollers from the crowd for them to stop? 
Hey, you know how it is in the congregation. Someone has the sniffles, right? <laughs> right? About 10 minutes of that, and you're looking over at them, wanting to lay hands on them. Well, think about these people scratching through the roof. For how long did that take? I remember one time Scott and Susie Miller were sitting over there, and a light bulb fell out of that. Boom! I mean, everyone... They almost had a cow. People, the service stops. People are coming over with brooms ready to sweep or in shock that they didn't get killed. What would happen today if right in the middle of this sermon you hear digging on the roof and people coming through? You'd all run because you'd think it was Osama bin Laden's followers. <laughs> These people had great faith, didn't they? Luke writes that the men lowered him right in front of Jesus. They hit their mark. They were now at the feet of the Savior, the God of the universe, the Alpha and Omega, the great I Am. What would he do? What would he say? Well, one time when Jesus saw a blind beggar at the side of the road, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. When a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years saw Jesus passing by, she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Jesus then said to her daughter, Your faith has healed you. When another woman approached Jesus and asked him to heal her daughter from demon possession, he answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. One thing we know about God is that he rewards great faith. It isn't, by the way, it isn't about mustering enough belief that is the key. Did you know that? Oh, if I only had great faith, I get... How much faith do you have to have, according to Jesus? A mustard seed. No one knows really what a mustard seed looks like, right? We don't collect them. Flea. A mustard seed is the side of a flea. So let me ask you, do you have the flea faith? Do you have flea faith? That's as big as it is. That's all you need. It isn't about mustering enough belief. It isn't having faith in faith. Oh, I have the faith to believe the faith that's going to fade. It's faith. It isn't even willing a healing to happen that makes the difference. It's not the power of your words. I don't care how, what books you read. It doesn't matter the phrase, the mantra that you pray, the right exact words. You know what it is? You know what it is? It's God. It's believing in who He is. It's understanding what He can do. It's trusting in Him regardless, despite what all outward appearances seem to be. It's trusting in the risen Savior. But what is faith? Well, Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. As human beings, when it comes to a situation, we have faith in the worst possible scenario, don't we? We don't have faith in what God can do to present to us the great scenario. So you have two choices. Think the worst that can happen or think the best. Think the best. Say, come on, God. Brian Carrico, stuck in a snow cave, ready to die. All of us were praying and praying with hope that he's coming out. And there he is. There he is. 
a little grayer, but there he is. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. I'm so thankful that we can turn to God and, and glorify him as we say, God, you're good. We're trusting in you. Now, why is faith important? Well, Hebrews 11.6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. My question is this. Are you seeking him? Are you seeking him? Because I don't know where you are right now. But do you have faith in the risen Savior? Do you have faith to go through it? Whatever it is. Are you struggling with an illness that never seems to get better? Are you married to the most difficult, insensitive, grouchy, moody, recalcitrant spouse in the world who in all likelihood, apart from a walking on water miracle, will never change? Don't say amen. <laughs> Are your kids lost in the world? Out of control? Is your life in ruins and you do not know what to do? Have faith in the Lord. Trust God. Put your faith in Jesus and believe that he is with you always, even to the very end of the age. You know why? Because he is. He's here. He's near to all who call on him in truth. So what does putting your faith in Jesus actually look like? I've been talking about it, but what does it look like? James puts it this way. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. You may have heard it this way, faith without works is dead. Faith acts, faith overcomes, faith pursues, faith strives to its object. Put your faith into action this way, James 5. Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Let me hear a duh. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Say duh. Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Don't say duh. I'll tell you why in a moment. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful. And effective. When you do those things listed in that passage, you are putting your trust in God, in His Word, in His faithfulness, and you're putting your faith in action. I don't know how many times I've told people to get prayer from the elders or to go to the prayer room after service for healing, wisdom, and direction from the Lord, and they just don't do it. Oh, Pastor Steve, I'm, I'm the singles pastor here, and we have a singles ministry, and all of them want to get married. Oh, Pastor Steve, I want to get married. I go, have you gone to the elders and gone every week until you're married? Find an elder, make friends with them so you won't feel embarrassed when you go and pray until you're married. Oh, you know how many people have done that? Zero. How many troubled marriages have the pastors heard? We say, go get prayer with the elders. Well, they do once or twice and then they give up. If you're sick, Go to the elders. You know what? You're going to notice the elders here afterwards, and for the most part, you're going to see two or three people getting prayer. 
You're not putting your faith in action. You have nothing to complain about. You're not doing your part. God's sovereign, yeah. He could heal your marriage like that. He could heal you like that. But what's your part? The elders will be here afterwards. I don't understand why there isn't a line up each aisle to get prayer from the elders. Scripture says to do this. That's why I say don't say duh when you read get prayer from the elders because you're not doing it. If you have nothing to pray about in your life, go up there and say, Elder Tui, I just want to thank God for what he's doing. I just want to, I just want to say thank you. My wife and I did that a couple weeks ago. I've never done that before. I go, something just wonderful happened in our lives that we'd been praying for for four months. And I said, we went to Mike Faye and just said, we just want to thank God. We just want to say thank you, Lord. And so we prayed and he prayed for us. But you watch. Today will probably be a big line because I'm exhorting you to do this. But next week it'll be back down to one or two people again. And then you're going to go, why is my life not changing? Where's God? And you heard this message. Then you can buy the CD and remind yourself again. And then you'll forget. And then you'll see the elders. Every time they're a visual reminder to go get prayer. Go to Pastor Dale's prayer meeting on Thursday. Pray for others. Get your focus off your problems and put them on someone else's. And you can pray and intercede on behalf of all these issues. But only seven of you said you're men of prayer. Okay, well, there's pizza. Remember, the crowd came for the food, too. Why, why don't people pray? Why don't they do this? People don't believe it will do any good. And guess what? It won't. But God will. Do you have faith in God? Then come to him. Run to him. Cry out to him. Believe in him. Just do it. Just do it. Whatever it is you're experiencing, do you have the faith to go through it? These men and their paralytic pal had enough faith to go through it, to go through a roof, to risk looking ridiculous and foolish. But oh, what great faith they had in Jesus. They heard what he did, that he healed, and they wanted him to heal their friend. So there they are. Dirt and sticks and broken tiles are all over the floor. Four men looking down through a broken gap in the roof breathless. The whole crowd gathered around, aghast at this interruption. And a helpless, paralyzed man staring up in the face of the only hope he had in the world. What would Jesus say to the man? Will he rebuke him? Would he heal him? With just a word, he could do it. Verse 5 says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, that's a bummer. Did he come for that? He's paralyzed. He wanted to get healing. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven? Well, on the surface, this hardly seemed to be what the man wanted or needed. But God looks on the heart, doesn't he? He saw in the man a faith that was not visible to anyone else. This man didn't just believe that Jesus could heal but he believed that he was the one who offered salvation to those who repent. There's never any, anything written about him speaking beforehand. Maybe he couldn't speak. Jesus knew what he really wanted. Sure, he wanted to be healed, but far more than that, he wanted forgiveness. You have to understand this. In that culture, sickness and infirmity were seen as a judgment from God for sin. The rabbis had a saying, 
There is no sick man healed of his sickness until all his sins have been forgiven him. How'd you like to grow up under that teaching? Right? If you've got a cold, if you've got an earache, you don't want anyone else to know because everyone else is going to know it's a judgment from God on your life. Remember the account of the man born blind in John 9? Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? This man had come to grips with his sin, being in that state of paralysis. He had reflected on the judgment that God had given him and come to the conclusion that he was as wretched on the inside as he was on the outside. This man knew he was a sinner. Because he was a sinner, he was certain that God was his enemy. Because he felt God was his enemy, he was paralyzed and ill. This man's heart was a lot like the tax collector in Luke 18 who said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, with all authority, declared this man not guilty. That day, he went from being sentenced to eternal hell to be given the privilege of eternal heaven. And all because some caring people brought their friend to church. Look, I know some of you won't share your faith. I understand that. And you certainly hate the way that I do it. Oh, that's the way pastors do it. That's okay. You think tracks are stupid? You don't understand how God can use them? I, I understand. I hear it all. Not necessarily from here, but out there. I understand. Okay, bring them to church. Let the pastor do the work. That's fine. That's what we're here for. Grab your friend and drag him to church and entice him by telling him there's donuts. <laughs> Remember, they come for the food. But you never know what they're going to hear out here. I can guarantee every time I'm preaching, I'm going to give you an altar call. So you know that. You see my name? I'm not going to talk about evangelism anymore. I'll talk a little bit about it. I'm not going to talk about evangelism anymore as a whole message. Okay? But during the message, I will. A little bit. But then there's going to be an altar call. Bring them in. Pastor Zach gives an altar call. Bring them in. Bring them in. Because you never know what God's going to do because God's word never returns empty. That's what these men did. They brought their friend to church. Verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Notice that the religious leaders were there. They're always there trying to trap Jesus in something he said or did. They were the rule keepers, the self-appointed protectors of God's law. Anything out of place or improper. And it was instant condemnation by these guys. They weren't too concerned with the paralytic's condition now, were they? No, only the rules mattered to them, not the people. They were more concerned that Jesus claimed to forgive sins. Now, in Jewish teaching, even the Messiah could not forgive sins. That was something only God can do. With that type of claim, Jesus was indeed blaspheming because only God can forgive sins and blasphemy was punishable by death. They're always trying to get Jesus. So let me ask you, is Jesus a blasphemer or is he God? He can either forgive sin or he can't. Don't believe for a moment that he's a good moral teacher. Choose this day and answer. Who do you say that he is? Is he a lunatic, a liar, or Lord? C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, wrote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, 
or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Verse 8. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Jesus knew their thoughts. But instead of debating with them, he offers a challenge. Verse 9, which is easier, to say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Which is easier to say? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. Why? (laughs) You can't tell. You can't verify that. Of course, your sins are forgiven is easier because no one can verify the claim. If you say, get up, take your mat and walk, the person better do it. The point is, though, both are impossible with men, but with God, all things are possible. So, Jesus has a reason for issuing this challenge to absolutely prove to the crowd, to the leaders, to you, unbelieving friend, that he is God. Verses 10 and 11, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He's saying this to the religious leaders and to the crowd, but then he turns to the paralytic. I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Remember, these teachers of the law believe that no one can get up and walk without being forgiven of his sins. Only God can forgive sins. If the man gets up and walks, this was irrefutable proof that the man was forgiven and that Jesus was God. So what happens? Verse 12. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. He got up. I'll bet she walked like this. (laughs) Or maybe he did something like this. No, he didn't do any of those things. This is what happened. Luke said that he went home praising God. He went home praising God. You bet he did. He got the full package deal. He got a new body. He got a new heart. And I'll bet he was even willing to make a donation for the roof repair fund. He was surprised by Jesus. And what was the result of the healing on the rest of the crowd? Verse 12b, this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus did all these miracles to show that he was God so that he could come to sinners and say, friends, your sins are forgiven. There are many ministries on television. There are many churches that are based on signs and wonders and miracles and and dog and pony shows. The problem with these people that place an emphasis on miracles and signs and wonders is that those miracles point to the healer, to the man, not to God. Guys like, oh, Benny and and Joyce and Kenneth, you just name, you know who they are. Or Fred, they point to themselves and they drive around in their private planes, bilking the masses who need Jesus, not another faith healer. If ever there's a miracle or a demon possession, the demon gets cast out or someone's raised from the dead, it better go to Jesus. The glory better go to Jesus. 
Otherwise, it's a false church and there's a heretic in the pulpit. It must always point to Jesus. Jesus did all these miracles to show that he was God. So that sinners could come and say, so that he could come to sinners and say, friends, your sins are forgiven. I want to close with this story from John MacArthur. He said, when I was in college, I was asked to visit a girl in the hospital who had accidentally been shot in the neck. The bullet severed her spinal cord and she was paralyzed from the neck down. I had never met the girl but was told she was a cheerleader at her school and had been very active and vivacious. When I came to the hospital room, she was lying on a sheepskin pad, unable to do anything but speak. After we talked a while, she confessed that if she were able, she would commit suicide because she did not want to face a future of helplessness. I presented Christ to her. And after some questions and discussions, she received Christ as her Lord and Savior. I went back to her several times, and one day she said to me, I can honestly say now that I'm glad the accident happened. Otherwise, I may have never met Christ and had my sins forgiven. The divine miracle that God performs today is the greatest of all miracles. A holy God forgiving unholy man. And he still comes to spiritual paralytics today, ready to heal all those who come to him by repentance and faith. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm thankful for that account that reminds us of who you are. I'm thankful that you are the great physician who heals not only our physical maladies, but our spiritual, spiritual insufficiencies. There's many in this room today who are suffering from various afflictions. I pray that you would place it on their heart by faith to come forward and get prayer from the elders. And I want to ask those elders to come forward right now, please. I pray, Lord Jesus, that they would see that you are real and that you would surprise them today. Thank you, Lord. Like the elders to come forward, please. For the rest of you, you may not be a, a Christian. It's my sacred obligation to remind you that the Bible says you are dead in your sin and trespasses. You're dead. If you died today, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? Don't deny that there's a hell. The world will tell you there's not a hell. But Jesus very clearly points out that there is. And don't pretend that you're good enough to make it to heaven because no one is good enough. You've got to be perfect. All you have to do is stay awake for a couple of hours to realize that you're not perfect. God has a standard by which he's going to judge everyone by. And that standard is the Ten Commandments. If you break one of those commandments, just one, that's called sin. If you sin one time, the penalty is eternity in hell. So judge yourself by this standard. Have you lied? Have you stolen? Of course, that makes you a liar and a thief. Have you ever misused God's name? That's called blasphemy. It's taking God's name and using it as a cuss word. We don't use our dog's name that way, but we use God's name that way day in and day out, and he gave us life and breath and everything we have. If you ever said, oh, my G-O-D, that's blasphemy. Seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Jesus says you look with lust. You've broken that one. If you've ever hated someone or gotten angry, the Bible calls that murder. So you can see you too are with sin. On Judgment Day, you'll be found guilty and you'll end up in hell forever. 
That's really bad news. The Bible says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. No thief, no adulterer, no murderer can enter the kingdom of heaven. You stand condemned already, Jesus says. That's bad news, but the good news is this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for us in this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. If you repent of your sin today, turn away from it, have a change of mind, a change of attitude about it, and put your trust in Jesus Christ, God will forgive you and grant you everlasting life. That's not only good news, that's great news. And that's what Jesus talked to those people in that crowded house about. So I want to offer that invitation today. After service or right now, you can come forward and talk to the elders. They'll explain further. But right now, I want to ask the rest of you to stand up and let's worship God because he's a mighty and awesome God. Amen?